0: Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To the reading of the word of God, let us say... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this summer, as I've told you, I uh, I just felt goaded by God to uh, preach uh, a number of topical messages, uh, exegetical but topical messages on uh, themes relevant for our church, our uh, our jobs, our uh, our families, uh, our marriages, our thinking, our culture our money, our worldview, all of these things that are pressing in on us and causing us specific problems and sins, I'm going to address those. Um, Once a month, of course, as I said, there will be a specific message pertaining to the family. That will continue. But I also want to hit on the head these pressing, sometimes painful topics. And some of the messages, for instance, I plan to teach one on the issue of divorce, other controversial topics, Um, I have been known on occasion to um, deal with a a controversial issue uh, that happens very rarely, once in every ten years or so. But it may happen a little more uh, this summer. Um, And I hope to address these things immediately. We have no time for undue subtlety and niceties. Life is short, so we needn't be subtle. The Word of God almost always is not subtle, but very direct, the passage we just read as an example. Uh, So we're reading Isaiah every day. Isaiah was God's prophet to Judah, and uh, he's predicting their impending captivity to uh, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and so on. And the book of Isaiah exalts Jesus Christ like almost no other book in the Old Testament. I mean, we all think of Isaiah chapter 53, but there are a number of chapters in Isaiah. That just present the gospel in such a powerful light. And particularly as you get to the end of Isaiah and the prediction of the glorious future under the power of the gospel, it's just a wonderful, beautiful book. You'll just thoroughly enjoy reading it. I hope and will, like me, be convicted by it. Uh so though it exalts Jesus Christ, the book of Isaiah also rebukes God's people for their sin and for their apostasy. And there's some issues there I want to address today in Isaiah chapter 1. Notice that Isaiah, we didn't read the first few verses, but notice that right out of the starting gate, he just Isaiah just leaps right in. Notice just real quickly, I want to mention a couple of things. Verse 2, which was not read, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 1. Notice the Lord says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Isn't that amazing? The Lord nourished his people, and they grew, and they rebelled. And then he says, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Isn't that remarkable? He's saying, basically, animals are smarter than you are, you idiots. That's what he's saying. Animals know their owner, but I'm your owner. I'm your master. I'm your king. And I have fed you and led you out of Egypt. And I've given you good, succulent food, and I've protected you and done all of these wonderful things and been your God. And you say, we don't care. Who are you? And we've turned, you've turned your back on me. How can that happen, he's saying. It's just remarkable. So, uh, notice he says then, uh, he speaks about what we might call total depravity in verse 4. Boy, isn't that sad. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, blood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, forsaken the Lord, provoke the Lord to anger. You ever hear the, somebody ever hear anybody say, God never gets mad. Have you ever heard that? God never gets mad. God doesn't get angry. Well, I'm sorry. The Bible says right there, you've turned backward, verse 4 says. And he says, oh boy, this is just frightening in verse 5. How many of you have ever, this is tragic, how many of you have ever like been in a hospital and you've been with someone who's uh, perhaps sadly their whole body is like riddled with cancer? Sharon, as most of you know, has been a hospice nurse before. It's a tragic thing to see that and go through it. The smell of cancer, for example, and not just that, but other things. Notice, now think about that when you read, Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? Revolt more and more. Notice verse 5, the whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. We would almost say at that point, we think about maybe leprosy. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Oh, isn't that just tragic? This indictment that God is bringing against his covenant people. Just tragic. Notice in verses 9 and 10 that we did read, you may have gotten the idea when we just jumped in and read, oh, this is very interesting, Isaiah is speaking against Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you thought for a minute maybe if you were thinking at all, but wait a minute, this is like hundreds and hundreds of years after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, so when he says in verses verse ten, "Hear the word, the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law, you people of Gomorrah." Wait a minute! Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't even around at the time. No, you know what he's saying? He's calling his own people, Sodom and Gomorrah. I just I, when I read that, I just I just grieve, not just because of that, but because that very often happens to the people of God today in the church. It's just tragic. And then he lists in verse 21 following, and we'll get into this briefly in a minute, these just egregious sins, bribe-taking and thievery and oppressing orphans and widows and just in general mistreating one another. Well, amid all of this, the prophet lays out the remedy. Isn't that wonderful that God doesn't just rebuke? God rebukes sternly and then says, Here's the problem, you numbskulls, you reprobates, apostates. Here's the problem but you know what? I love you. Here's the remedy. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God rebukes very strongly, and he very strongly gives the remedy. What a long-suffering. I was thinking about that this past week in my own life, and perhaps in the lives of yours. Sometimes I think, God, there is no reason for you to forgive me after what I've done. And I think about you. Perhaps we've done things, and we think, God, why did you even... Again and again we sin, and yet God is such a long-suffering and a very good God, We need to thank God for his long suffering. He suffers a great deal with us as his people. So uh, he gives that uh, that remedy. It's quite evident here. Forgiveness by this gracious God. We read it in verse 18. This, one of those most powerful verses in all the Bible on God's forgiveness. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There is, of course, a condition to that. He's not saying, I'm going to forget about your sins, even though you don't care about me. He says, no, the condition is that you confess your sins and you put them away. If I could give a paraphrase, however, to the scripture here, and it says it sort of quite plainly, in the last part of verse 16 and the first part of verse 17, notice it says, and some of your translations may not read exactly like this, but essentially it says, cease to do evil, Learn to do good. Now, I will tell you that in some ways that encapsulates the entire responsibility of mankind before God. Cease to do evil, and of course you can't do that without the power of the gospel. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Very simple, very straightforward. I want to address that. Notice what God says here. In verses 11 through 15, you may have noticed this, and it may have surprised you. Notice this sort of, he's talking about the futility of ritualism. Now, here's a staggering fact. All of this sin was going on not by church-hating pagans, even not by Christians who weren't religious, but by very religious Old Testament Jews. Very externally religious. In fact, notice, they were committed, these Jews, to all their ceremonies. Verse 11 talks about their sacrifices. Verse uh, verse 12, they come before the Lord, and, the, and we read in verse uh, 13 about their feasts, of course the feast of the Passover and the feast of booths, and we could go on and on, all of these Jewish feasts. Verse 15 says, you come and spread out your hands before me. By the way, that's the, basically the biblical way people pray. Most of the time. Did you know that? Now, we have sort of, in American folk religion, the idea that most of the time when we pray, we and often ministers would say years ago, bow your heads and close your eyes. There's nothing wrong with that. But as far as we know, most of the time, that's not the way people prayed in the Bible. They didn't pray like this. Like that. They prayed basically like this. Looking up to the Lord with their hands open like that. Nothing especially proud about that. They basically said, God, what this is saying, visually, is that God, our face is open before you, our hands are open to you, our whole life we're naked as it were before you, Lord, we're giving honor and glory to you. That's essentially what it's saying. But, and that's what the people of God were doing. But, but, through all that religious ritual, the problem is when they left, we would say church, they're of the, the temple and tabernacle ceremonies, when they left there, left the synagogue we would say and all that stuff, when they left there, they just went back and lived like pagans. And you know what God says? I don't give a rip about all of your ceremonies and all your ritual if you're living an ungodly life. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in a second, but (coughs) it really is interesting. We today have a generation that is increasingly attracted to religious formality. Um, I think that's why so many young people who are reared as evangelicals tend to end up in Rome, in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, in Anglo-Catholicism, and so on. Uh, By the way, by the way, many of our, our meaning, our style of evangelical churches uh, haven't helped. Many of those young people that end up in these highly aesthetic, sacerdotal churches, we would say, end up there because the evangelical churches are an utter failure. That's why. Filled with flightiness and superficiality and lack of godly worship order and cheesy music and Jay Leno preaching, and Oprah therapy sessions. So I was driving in Phoenix the other day. Most of you know. Thank you for praying for me. I was driving around, going to the home of the Lindsay, some friends that some of you have met for dinner. And so turn on the radio. There was the talk station. I think Glenn Beck or somebody was on. I didn't want to listen to him at the time. So I just sort of zoomed over, scanned over, and I hit a Christian station. Well, good. I want to hear like some good Christian music. and It was family radio. And um, Pastor, Pastor Camping was on. Harold Camping was on. I'm bringing this up because I've heard him say some outlandish things. Never this. So it was open line, open forum. And people from all over the country called in and asked Pastor Camping uh, what the Bible teaches. So some guy calls in and asks a fairly good question. And among his answers... Pastor Camping, who was, of course, told everyone they need to leave all their churches and so on. But here's what he said. I I cannot, I can't believe God let him live after hearing him say this. He said, everybody left in churches. He means churches like this, our church, Bible-believing churches. He says, all of these churches are wrong, and anybody who comes to a church like this, doing what we're doing today, is guilty of devil worship. We're worshiping the devil. I just, I'm, I'm just driving along. I'm thinking, why, God, why don't you, I could show you a text in scripture that indicates that that really is a form of blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't God just strike the guy dead? I don't know. I don't know why. Now I brought up that story because when you have, and that's an extreme example, but when you have a number of evangelical churches that just end up with craziness and nuttiness and um, barking dog revivals and people running around doing silly things, no care for the integrity of the word, the music sounds like it just came out of some, uh, some karaoke bar on Saturday night. Um, no dignity in wor- dignity in public worship. I understand! I, I, to, to a degree, I understand. Young people whose attitude is, I can't live that way. I want to go to a church that has dignity and order and beautiful aesthetics and so on. I understand, I say, when they throw up and say, I'm sick of the superficiality and cheesiness. Give me some order. Aesthetically pleasing worship. This response is understandable, but sometimes I must say the cure is just as bad as, if not worse than, the disease. Because according to Isaiah 1, religious form is no substitute for zealous, heartfelt obedience. I want to say that again. Religious form is no substitute for zealous, heartfelt obedience. That's very clear from this passage. God would rather have us treat one another well in our families, and our marriages, our employees, our employers, our friends, believers, unbelievers, care for one another, tell the truth, work very hard, men work hard, bring home money, ladies submit to your husbands as you should, men love your wives as you should, and on and on. God would much rather have that than have everybody make sure that Sunday everything is just beautiful. Some people have the idea that just if worship is done beautifully on Sunday and everything is just perfect, that that kind of washes away all of their sins of the past week. I can assure you on the authority of Isaiah 1, that idea is wrong. God says very plainly, don't come in here with all of this beauty and all of your, oh God, we come before you and we bow before you and our hands are open before you. When you're mistreating your husband, when you're mistreating your wife, When you're mistreating your employees, when you're saying you're going to pay somebody and you don't pay them, whoop, but that's not really spiritual. God really cares about my being in church on Sunday and my just sort of speaking, speaking lofty, lofty words to Him. He doesn't care about the fact that I don't pay my bills on time. No, God's basically saying that He's more interested in you paying your bills on time properly than He is about your little lofty words. That's kind of what He's saying. Isn't it amazing how we can sort of aesthetically over-spiritualize things? He's saying here, I don't care about your solemn assemblies and all of these things. He says, I care about deep, heartfelt, immediate obedience in your life. That's what uh, pleases God. What pleases God is devotion to and obedience to him and not religiosity. He's very plain about that. So, He deplores religiosity. It's, here, notice verse 15. Notice verse 15. You spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'll not hear. Now, have you ever heard people say, God always hears every prayer of everyone who prays? Have you ever heard that? Isn't it amazing how we have sort of this American folk religion that just people have these ideas and that have nothing to do with the Bible? <laughs> no, the Bible's very clear. If you are intentionally... In sin against God, you refuse to confess your sin. The Bible's very clear. God doesn't hear your prayers. And if we come here on Sunday, and isn't our prayer time a wonderful time? Yes, it is. But if our hearts are not right in the sight of God, if we're not treating one another as we should, treating unbelievers, relatives as we should, If our mind and heart is filled, as the scripture says, with sores and putrefying lust and all of those things, if our life is filled with that, all of our prayers are just going no farther than that ceiling. God just doesn't hear. God hears the prayers of people that are repentant and contrite and broken before him. Those are the prayers that God hears. God doesn't hear the prayers of everybody. God does not hear the prayers of unrepentant sinners. God hears the prayers of repentant sinners. He even says, notice in verse 14, man, this will certainly get the people who believe in sort of all sorts of extensive liturgy. Your new moon and your appointed uh, feast, notice the scripture says, my soul hates, they're a trouble to me. Wow. Isn't that remarkable? You get together for all of your religious ceremonies, and yet your life is not in line with my law. And God says, I'm just sick of this. It's as though he looks over heaven saying, what are you doing down there? Oh, God, we're praying lofty prayers. He's I don't want to hear it. I want you to change your life. That's what he's saying. And that's true about religiosity today. Now, I want to confess, and I hope it's not true in this congregation, though I'm preaching it to you today. I confess that among so many people, among evangelicals today and others, various churches, it's amazing how that there is just a lust for religiosity going through the motions. But God doesn't care about that if our heart is not right in his sight. In fact, he detests it. You know why? Because it's a form of hypocrisy. It's a form of hypocrisy. And if we ever get to that point, and I pray we don't, I pray that on Sunday we shut everything down, we get on our faces before God and confess our sin before God, that would please him more than a beautifully printed liturgy. That's very clear from the book of Isaiah. Abundantly clear! But I must tell you, that very often beautiful external religiosity, and there's nothing wrong with beauty, but beautiful external religiosity is often created as a substitute, an enthusiastic substitute for simple, deep, heartfelt love for and obedience to the Lord. And that's what God hates. God despises that. So, if you must choose... Between religiosity and obedience, always choose obedience. Then we come beautifully to verse 18, the sin-cleansing power of the gospel. I just love this verse, come now, let us reason. It's almost the word is dispute in the Hebrew together. In other words, let's talk with one another, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I was trying to think of a good metaphor for this. There's already a metaphor there, of course, but even extending that metaphor, there's probably no fabric, perhaps, more beautiful than crisp, ironed, bright white linen. I think one of you ladies, you were to get a nice, bright white, crisp linen dress, have it all ironed, let's say you're going to a wedding or some special function or something like that, so you take this dress, and of course, you're beforehand, let's say, or afterwards at the reception, you drink some wine, and you spill a big bunch of wine on your beautiful white linen dress. And wine is a tough stain to get out. So let's say then that for some reason, everybody comes over and says, oh, that's really cool, we're going to spill a lot of wine. And they just pour wine all over this. Can you imagine just how utterly crud-filled this beautiful white linen dress would look? Well, the Scripture says that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through all he's done for us on the cross, that that's what sin does. It takes this beautiful white linen uh, life that we have, and it pours all sorts of crimson on it. But that And it's just, it's just dirty, and it's disgusting, and nobody wants to look at it. It's totally unpleasing. But by means of the gospel, what Christ has done for us in dying on the cross and the resurrection... He takes that linen garment and cleans it up again. And so it's just absolutely beautiful and immaculate. And it's as he were he irons it again, and it's just lovely and beautiful again. He gets rid of all the sin. Now here's the deal. This is I want, I want you to say. It's not just that he gets rid of the sin, although that's, that is the most crucial thing. He also gets rid of this sort of memory of sin. You can't see it anymore. Now many of us have a problem of knowing experientially that God has forgiven our sins that we have confessed. But we don't understand that when God forgives our sins, they are purged and put away, and they don't stand against us. In other words, if God has forgotten about confessed sin, I'm not speaking of unconfessed sin, I'm speaking about confessed sin. If you've confessed your sin and repented and put it away, God has forgotten about it, he's purged away the stain. So you don't need to think about it anymore. It would be like somebody, after you've gotten this beautiful linen dress beautifully back to its original, even better than its original state, you walking around very, very sad, and somebody comes up to you and say, oh, that's a beautiful dress, ladies, and you say, but you didn't see it a few weeks ago. It was in really, really bad shape, and I really still feel very bad about all of these terrible stains. And your friends, well, I, I didn't see it then. It looks really great now. Yeah, but don't cheat me out of talking about when the dress was dirty. It was really, really, really bad. you understand the point I'm making? So when your sins are confessed before the Lord, then, and your mind is constantly going back to those sin and what you have done, a husband has done, a wife has done, or our children have done, or our parents and so on, remember that when the sin is confessed and when that sin is put away, it really is purged. Purged and cleansed means it's gone. It's put away. And the more you think about it up here, and I want to say this reverently. We go before the Lord and tell him, Basically, the Lord is going to say, well, I don't remember that. What are you doing remembering it? I don't think about that. It's purged. It's done away with. What are you doing? Well, but it's just such a sad thing. It's done. If it's confessed and put away and if we've repented of it, notice what the Scripture says. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be whitest, red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's gone. Completely gone. By the way, we also don't need to remind one another. If our sins are gone and are confessed, they've been put away. Then let us accept to one another the way the Lord does, justified and clean in His sight. What a blessing that is. So today, if you're here, our sins can be blotted out. We're made clean and pure by God's grace. The message to you and me is this. You can be cleansed. You can be freed. All of that can be put away. You say, but I've got a life pattern That doesn't matter. If it's confessed and put away, we say, Lord, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. Please forgive me for this sin. Give me the strength to move on in faith and obedience. The Lord, for Jesus' sake, not because we're good, but for his sake, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. And that beautiful white linen goes back to its original, even better than its original state of just utter beauty. So don't obsess about sin. What I'm saying, among other things, is don't obsess about confessed sin don't obsess about confessed sin it's gone, gone, gone that leads to the final point so how do you get to that point the scripture is very clear in verses 16 and 17 just love it there wash yourselves, make yourselves clean put away the evil of your doings from before me cease to do evil, learn to do good now repentance is very simple isn't it remarkable how people overcomplicate obedience? Oh, man. The Bible, there are some difficulties in the Bible. For the most part, the Bible not a complicated book. For the most part. Repentance basically means you're walking one way and you turn around and go the other way. That's basically all it means. Repentance just means change. It means to turn around. It means to change. We can use it almost in a non, non We're driving along the road and you say, oh, Man, you know what? I just forgot. I left something at home. When you actually go on a U-turn or turn around, that really is a form of repentance. It means you're changing. You're turning around. You're going in the opposite direction. Theologically speaking and spiritually speaking, that's all repentance is, to change. Now, I say it's amazing how we can overcomplicate that. But I must tell you, I love what it says here, last part of verse 16, first part of verse 17. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Ready? Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. I want to paraphrase it: Stop sinning, start obeying. But well, it can't be that simple, and no, I'm matter of fact, it is. Of course, today we overcomplicate things. Now, here's a pious example. Um, it's so hard. I'm waiting on God to change me, and I'm going to continue on with my wicked thoughts and my adulterous thoughts and my wicked mouth, my mistreating my wife mistreating my husband, being a sloppy employee, not obeying my parents, uh, not caring for my elderly parents, not tr- training my children well, I'm going to continue and persist in all that obedience because I'm waiting on God to change me. Isn't that so pious? And according to Isaiah chapter 1, totally unbiblical. The Bible says very plainly, if you are willing, if you are willing to obey, turn your back. Notice verse 19 is very. No, did you notice that in verse 19? If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the, uh, the good of the fruit of the land. If you're willing to obey, God will give you the strength to do that. In other words, don't keep sitting just waiting for God sort of sovereignly to change you. If you know what's right to do, do it and don't wait. And then here's another one that, I, oh, man, this is just remarkable. I sin because I have a medical condition. Um, My medical condition makes me lust after women. Yell at my spouse. Now, I know that medical God has made us as unified beings. And I know that when I'm sort of pressured and emotionally worn out, I can say things, snap out, that I shouldn't do. But that's the whole point. All that stuff is not an excuse for your sin. Because then, basically, the people that would be most obedient to be God would be those that had the most drugs. Basically, if the problem is that you have all of these medical conditions, then let's just get on Obamacare and get all the drugs we can, because the most obedient obedient people will be the ones that have the most drugs. Give me a lot of drugs, and I'll really be able to serve God. Am I saying that all drugs are wrong? No. Thank God for the blessings of of penicillin and various drugs that can be useful. That's totally fine, a great gift of God. I'm simply saying, don't use medical conditions and all sorts of other things as an excuse for your wicked sin. <clears throat> I had a lady one time tell me years ago about a student in school. This was a long time ago. He really treat, treat, just treated badly with lie and hit other kids and so on. She says, well, the problem is he. Anytime he's around peanut butter, and he's just around peanut butter all the time. So basically the the kids calling people nasty names and pushing guys down and being a bully was a peanut butter problem. Um, It is truly remarkable how we can give excuses for our sin. Now maybe he was allergic to peanut butter and that causes problems. But if you're a sinner, confess the fact, I sinned and quit sinning. Um, Another example of this, how we overcomplicate obedience. Oh man, oh this is so frequent. I have a bad family history. And if you knew my father, or my mother, or my siblings, or whatever is the case, maybe, or my children, particularly, if you knew about them, you would know it's because of them that I am the way that I am. Do you realize how stupid that is? That goes all the way back to Eden. Our real fathers you go all the way, are Adam and Eve, they're sinners. You want to know the way you are? Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's kind of right, and that's why you need salvation in the gospel, so that you'll change. This blame system can go all the way back. Because if I were to talk to your parents... You know what they would say? You say, my problem is my parents, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, and they, and they just made it's because I got their genes in my body, and I have do it all. this. You know what, if I talked to your parents, what they would say? But my problem was my parents. And you know what, I talked to the grandparents, what they would say? But my problem was I had a difficult father. And on and on and on it goes. So, the, pow- the point of the gospel is that it frees people and changes people. That's the point. Um, yeah, you may have had propensities from your parents. Gotten, I agree with all that. And that's what the gospel does. It's designed to change people. Like somebody says, oh, the problem is, man, my father, he was just a very bad father. Yeah, but when you got saved, you got a new father. You got a new spiritual father who gives you great strength and great hope and the power of the Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. All of that to say in the last couple of minutes, all of that to say, That according to the scripture, verses 16 and 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good. It's basically very simple. Determine in your heart, by God's grace, if you're mistreating a spouse, if you're mistreating your children, if you're not properly addressing your bills, you should be addressing them, if your mind and heart are filled with lust, if you men aren't cultivating your wives, if your wives are not submitting to your husbands, and on and on and on, whatever the case may be, if we're not faithful to the gospel. If we're not faithful in caring for one another, in in getting the gospel to the lost, the people around us, and I could go on and on, if we're worrying, spending time in anxiety, and all of that sort of thing, if that's going on, I have the remedy. The remedy is, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. May the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse me, and by your strength I'm going to move ahead. Um, God is ready and Eager and willing to forgive those who repent. Revel today in the grace of God to those who truly repent. According, and I conclude with this to verse 20, there are only two ways. There it is, very simple again. Not 15 ways, two ways. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, however, you'll eat the good of the land. Isn't that simple? If you confess your sin, if you trust in me, if you obey my word, you'll be blessed. If you turn your back, I don't mean just simply fall into sin. We trip up, we confess our sin. But if you rebel, you turn your back on God, it's very simple, God sends judgment. So, let's notice again the simplicity of it. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Parents, train your children. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. It is not complicated. And do not allow these little psychological therapeutical, nonsensical, egregious, undermining, perverse, i can think of more adjectives, but I won't, <laughs> excuses to keep us from obeying God. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. As we come to the Lord's table today, let us revel in, in his communion, his bloodshedding, his body brokenness for us, recognizing the truth of the gospel that our sins are cleansed away. And if he doesn't remember them, we shouldn't remember them evil either. And when we trip and we sin, you know what you do? Don't fall into despair. Get up and say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I confess my sin. Give me strength. Let me move ahead in the power and strength of the gospel. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Let us pray. Your word, O Father, is immensely, immensely practical. Forgive us, O God, for overcomplicating the truth of obedience. Lord, help us to forgive one another. Help us to confess our sins to you. Help us, O God, never to substitute religiosity for obedience. Help us, O God, to be a zealous and obedient people. Help our children to grow up to be zealously obedient. Lord, we think of these precious little ones. May your loving, kind grace surround them. May it almost, as it were, suffocate them in your grace, O God, and your kindness toward them. Bless us, O God, as we come to communion today. Bless our musicians. Fill them. What a great musical set's been selected today. May we sing from our hearts to you. Lord, if there's some that haven't forgiven one another today, Lord, may they not come for communion until they have forgiven one another. Lord, we know in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed, forgive us, O Lord, our debts as we forgive sins and debts as we have forgiven others. Help, may we forgive one another. May we, O God, live lives... As sinners, yes, but as sinners who have confessed their sins. Repentant sinners, we move and stand in your glory and recognize that when we have confessed our sin, we stand entirely beautiful in this wonderful white linen garment. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Oh, Father, thank you so much for that glorious truth. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our Lord, our King, whom we love, the one who died for us and who is alive today. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Do you know what a privilege it is to come to the